Good morning. It's snowing out. Boo. Boo, boo, boo. Everybody's doing good today, I hope. Um, you know, I, I had one of those weeks where you uh, long for it to be over. I, I, I planned with good intentions to get started really early on the sermon and start working on it. And uh, I had, it was one of those weeks where like I ordered some parts for my desk in my office. I wanted to fix it up a little bit. Last week I didn't teach, so I uh, caught up on a bunch of stuff and also cleaned my office. And then I was organizing, and I got the parts in. I was all excited. It was going to make it nice and organized for me. And um, I had to modify the entire thing I got, you know, with new holes and everything. And that took up some time. And then um, uh, I went to, to start working on my sermon. And, um, of course, we had taken a couple days off earlier in the week, uh, Steph and I, to get away for uh, uh, an overnight. And so I had lost a couple of days at the beginning of the week. I I started to get ready to work on my sermon. I got a phone call from a, a brother that I hadn't talked to in a while, and, and I talked to him and, and realized that I was running out of time. And then uh, Thursday came around, and I had something else come up. And then Friday, I was like, I'm going to get to the office early. So I took off to get to the office and uh, blew a tire on the interstate on the way in. And so that was fun to shell out an extra $400 to buy two new tires for your vehicle. And then uh, I think I finally got to the office at, at uh, 2 o'clock. And uh, um, I was getting ready to work on the sermon, and then I realized that something else had come up. So I went and uh, w- took care of that. And I finally, at 3 o'clock on Friday, sat down at Starbucks to start working on this. So it is a beauty. You know what I have found, though, is that the Lord is faithful, and when I have less time, because oftentimes I'm doing things that He's calling me to do, um, I have found that some people have told me, that was your best sermon ever, and it's the sermon I spent the least amount of time prepping in. And so I don't know what that says about me and my skills, but I know what it says about the Holy Spirit. And this morning, as I was just kind of walking through some stuff, I was a little discouraged about some things, and you know, we... we we have a sick dog at home, our house dog, and he's like just making a mess everywhere, throwing up, and it's just been really uncomfortable. And I feel bad for my wife because she's oftentimes the one home cleaning it up. And I don't know where I'm going with all this, um, other than to say it was kind of a, a, a long week, and, and, and I was discouraged even this morning, and I was reminded of uh, Psalm 28 I read this morning, and, and this has literally nothing to do with my sermon, any of this. But um, it says in Psalm 28, and this is, I just want to share with you because I was so encouraged. It says, the Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. And then he says four things. The psalmist declares four things he asks of the Lord. He says, oh, save your people. Bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Uh, what a joy that is that as, as a minister, as your shepherd, I feel oftentimes wholly inadequate, and I come to the psalmist, and he says, cries out to God that God would be their shepherd. And that's the reality, that God is my shepherd, He's your shepherd. We, we uh, uh, as leadership, 
seek to shepherd and care and love you, but ultimately the reward, the joy is that God is our shepherd, and that's our cry. And, and I began to reflect on all the joys and the, and the privileges that the Lord has bestowed on, on me as, as a pastor and, and thankfulness for, for you as a congregation and this church. And, and it just warmed my heart, and, and it was such a joy to come into worship with a much better attitude than how I started my day. So anyway, all that to say, Mark chapter 3, right? I promise I wasn't stalling because I don't have any content. I really do. I was, I, the Lord was very gracious to me this week, and I was very encouraged by the word this morning. So we're going to turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 20. So if you would turn there and stand with me, we'll read through the rest of the chapter, starting at verse 20. It says in Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. <clears throat> and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one enters, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and every blasphemy they they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were seated around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit's presence dwelling within us. That we might be able to learn and comprehend the truth of your word. And so, Father, we just submit ourselves into your mercy for understanding and grace that we might believe and strive after you, Lord. We thank you, we praise you, in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Please be seated. So we're going to walk through the story. I have been thoroughly encouraged and amazed at this Gospel of Mark. And, and little, I like to catch little nuances. And so I, I, as I read, I've got a, a, a Bible I picked up that, um, I know I need another one, right? Um, but it's got double spacing. It's just the New Testament. And so you can write notes under words and highlight things. And so I, I circle and underline and highlight uh, words that just stand out to me. And as we walk through the story of the Gospel of Mark, and we mentioned at the very beginning that this, this Gospel is really about establishing who Jesus is and what He has done. And it's building in intensity with each and every step of the story. 
And what I found fascinating is, as it's ramping up, Mark is trying to spit it all out and get to the cross as quickly as he can. Did you notice that if you start looking at this in chapter 3, 20 of the 34 verses begin with the word and. He's not pausing. It's like, if you ever, I, I have um, a daughter who can talk, and, and, and when she gets going with a story, you can't get in a word. She's just like nonstop, and you're just like, okay, you can't. And I feel like that's what's going on here. Mark's so excited. He wants to get to the gospel, and he's going, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And this, it's just ramping up with intensity because he's excited about what's coming. And the story that we start with in verse 20, uh, Stephen kind of mentioned a little bit last week, but we want to start there. I feel like it's a good starting point. Um, We're going to look at the story, I think, with three kind of aspects of it. I realize that sounds like my alliterations. It it kind of is. But um, uh, the first one is a family confusion. Uh, The story starts, it says that they went, he, meaning Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered again. I am concentrating on how I say again, thanks to some of you. Um, So that they could not even eat, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. I want you to just kind of think through the story here. The scene is Jesus is returning home. Uh, If you go back up a few few sections, you'll find that Jesus had just uh, got done doing a whole bunch of miracles with this huge crowd, and then he, uh, we, we get the, the glimpse of his disciples that he has selected, and, and he returns home, and what happens? Immediately, a crowd gathers around him. It's so intense, so large, that it says that he doesn't even have time to eat bread, that they can't even eat bread. And you can imagine the scene from his family as they hear about this. Um, he's not even eating. There's something going on. You can understand, if you just pause and think about it, his concern, their concern. And their concern, they word it here, they say he is out of his mind. I mean, think about it for a minute. If you pause and just reflect on what's going on in Jesus' ministry from the eyes of his family. You know, he had left a, a... potentially prosperous uh, job as a carpenter to become an itinerant pastor. In a, in a day and age where if you're not part of the elite educated scholars from Jerusalem, you have no business being a part of, of that. He had left what potentially was prosperous. He, he had become so uh, popular that the crowds had intensified and gathered around him and, and, and maybe they thought, you know, this fame is going to get to his head. The religious and the political leaders began to become threatened by him and began to start verbalizing some antagonism towards him and and their hatred began to come out towards him. And so they they maybe reflected on the pushback that he would be getting, the violence and the, the threats that were coming towards him. He suddenly showed some spiritual authority and these miracles that they had no clue where this was coming from. Imagine if one of your siblings started doing this out of nowhere. Maybe they questioned his judgment after he picked his disciples, this unruly group of men that, that literally had, had zero credibility to be religious leaders, to be disciples that, that would follow. And the last straw, he was so busy that he was neglecting taking care of his own physical well-being. 
Can you imagine the concern that they must have had? What was their response? Notice what it says. It says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. The Greek word there literally means to overtake him by force. They went out to grab him, to overtake him, and to take him away. And, and as we're going to build in this, what I want you to see in this passage is that there is a real serious spiritual battle going on. An intense spiritual battle. It starts with even his family. When you set out in ministry and you go to, to minister to people and when your own family begins to oppose, there is some serious spiritual battle going on. But it doesn't just stop there. The story goes on. It says in verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, Now we have a foe clash. Because it alliterates with a family confusion. A foe clash, right? I want you to notice some things about the story here. It says that the scribes came down from Jerusalem. First thing I want you to see is the movement. They came from Jerusalem. That's very significant. This is the first time a delegation from headquarters had come to confront Jesus. This stuff is getting serious. That the, the Jerusalem delegation came to confront Jesus and, and they're going to they're gonna come and, and it's getting very serious. It's getting real. And notice what they say. The, the, the motive is is in it you can see it and and not only if you if you don't quite get it the motive can be found earlier in this chapter in verse 6 it says the pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the herodians against him why to destroy him okay i want you to to, to grab hold of this so the family wanted to stop him because they thought he was out of his mind. The Pharisees are coming. They're sending a delegation from Jerusalem, from headquarters, from the religious head where everything stems and in a culture that is very centralized in Jerusalem. They send the authorities. It'd be like the president sending somebody to come and, and figure out what's going on with you. And so they come and their objective, their motive, to destroy Jesus. Not to stop him, to destroy him. Let that sink in. I don't know about you, but as I thought about that and reflected on it, I have never wanted to destroy anyone. They wanted to attack his character. They wanted to attack his ministry. They wanted to assassinate his, his future role in any type of ministry. This isn't the only time they've tried to do it. They slandered Jesus over and over again. In John chapter 10, verse 20, they said, He is a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to Him? In John chapter 8, verse 48, it says, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? In John 8, 41, they said, We are not born of fornication. In Luke chapter 7, verse 34, they came to Jesus and Jesus uh, quotes to them what they have said. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then in John chapter 7, verse 24, or 20, again, they say, you have a demon. This is their heart being exposed before you. This is the reality that Jesus Christ, our Savior, faced in his day and age is a real, real 
spiritual battle. And notice the mud. What do they say? So what is their attack? He is possessed by Beelzebul. That's a fun word to say. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. I want you to grab hold of what they're saying. They're calling him Beelzebul, and depending on the Greek variation, it could be either Beelzebul or Beelzebub, and they have two different meanings. Neither one is a compliment. Beelzebul is Lord of Dung, and Beelzebub is Lord of Flies. That's what they're calling Jesus. And then they say, not only that, but he casts out demons by the prince of demons. That doesn't mean the son of demons. The Greek there for prince is archon, which means the chief, Satan himself. So I want you to catch what's going on here. They come in with name calling. And why are they doing this? Because they want to discredit Jesus in front of this crowd, this great crowd that has gathered. They want to take away his ministry. They want people to never believe him. They want to discredit. One thing that I find fascinating is they don't disacknowledge the fact that he is casting out demons. There's, there's evidence. He's doing the work. There are demons being cast out. And so they have to discredit Jesus and the power of what, how he's doing it. And so they say uh, that he is controlled by a demon, that he is controlled by Beelzebub, that he is uh, by Satan himself casting out demons. This is, brothers and sisters, reckless hate against the Son of God. No other explanation for it. Reckless hatred. Intense reckless hatred. They have zero evidence that he is possessed by a demon. They just want to throw that mud out. You know, we got politics today where the goal in running a campaign, we could know nothing about what a, camp, a political candidate actually stands for, but we know what the other opponent says they are. Because that's what we do nowadays. Instead of actually addressing issues and, and, and things, we want to just sling mud and hope it sticks on people. It's reckless hatred. That's all it is. And they wanted to what? Destroy Jesus. And this is where everything flipped for me as I was reading through this text. Because not only do you have their motive, you have their movement coming from Jerusalem, you have the mud that they are slinging, but you have the mercy in the story. Because if it's me being attacked like this, my desire is to be right and to prove to everybody I am right. I hate this about myself. That if you start talking to me about something theologically that I may not agree with, I am going to fight every urge in me to argue because I want to be right. And I want to prove to you that I'm right. Because I am a pride-filled person who always wants to be right. It doesn't have to be about theological things. Just get into a discussion with me about sports and I'll get aggravated and I'll start spewing off stupid stuff and I'll, at the end I'll be upset at myself and I'll have to apologize to you and ask for forgiveness but this is me and I'm looking at this story and I'm waiting for the wrath of God to come down on these people that are calling the son of God the Lord of dung and you know what I don't see I don't see the wrath of God anywhere I actually see mercy incredible mercy this, I highlighted and underlined a whole bunch of stuff here. This is incredible to me. Notice what it says. Starting in verse 23, after he's been called the Lord of Dung, or possessed by the Lord of Dung, 
It says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Notice first, he calls them where? To him. He calls them to him. I don't know about you, but when I get into a confrontation, I usually go away from it. Jesus literally calls them over. Hey guys, come here. Come here. And then it says, and he speaks to them. It doesn't say he yells at them. It doesn't say that he, he rebukes them. He corrects them. He calls them to him and he speaks to them. And how does he speak to them? In parables. Do you understand why Jesus uses parables? Because he's going to convey a truth and he wants you to understand it. Jesus' heart here is not anger towards these men. It's, come here, I want to talk to you, and let me give you an illustration so you can understand it. That is incredible to me. And not only that, but the illustrations He gives is the Gospel. Let's look at it. He starts with a question to show how illogical their statement is. How can Satan cast out Satan? In my way of communicating, I'd be like, hey, stupid. Do you realize how dumb that sounds? That Satan would cast himself out? That is just illogical. That's why I'm not Jesus, thankfully. Because I couldn't do that. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's not possible. And he goes on and gives a couple illustrations. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan rises up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end is coming. He gives a qualification on a principle that we should all understand deeply in our own minds and hearts. It's sound logic. It's reason that if there's division, division never works in a house. It never works in a church. It never works in a kingdom. It just doesn't work. There needs to be unity. It's why Jesus, when He prayed to the Father on behalf of, of us, the future generations of believers, he says, Father, I pray not just for these here, but for those that will believe in my name, that they would be united even as we are united. Because he understood the importance of unity. Because he knows that the principle of division is that it will not stand, it will fall, it will come crumbling. And, and you can just take about three minutes to comprehend, probably 30 seconds to just think through the logic that if your own mind is at odds, you are unstable. I mean, James says a, double, a, an un, a double-minded person is unstable in all that he does because of division. And so Jesus just approaches them with some simple common sense. Satan can't cast himself out, nor would he want to even if he could because it would be his downfall. It's foolish. But then everything turns on that word but in verse 27. He says, but, and this is his, Jesus declaring his quest of why he came. And it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Brothers and sisters, if this isn't a clear picture of the gospel, I don't know what is. He comes to invade earth. That is what Jesus has done. 
earth is and has been the domain of Satan. Over and over again, we read Scripture that tells us this. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and the whole earth, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But Jesus comes, he enters into the strong man's home, and what does he do? He conquers Satan. He binds him and takes his power away. That is Jesus' quest, that he would come into this earth and that he would bind up the strong man. And what a great and glorious word that we have over and over again in Scripture about this, that in 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning uh, is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, why? Was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14, Since then, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook. He came. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He came to plunder and to take his goods, the captives. So Jesus, in being mudslinged on, responds with mercy and says, no, 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 you don't understand. You think I'm casting out demons by Satan, but that's foolishness. No, in fact, I came to bind up the devil and to take back the goods, to plunder them. That word plunder there means to take with force, violence, to grab hold, to to wrestle it away, to ransack. But Jesus' mercy doesn't just end with explaining all this and talking through the gospel. He goes on to warn them with an incredible theological truth. And I think so many of us can can be careful that we don't get hung up on an aspect of this theological truth. If Jesus hated them, he would have just stood back and did nothing. But instead he warns them and he says this. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter but whoever blasphemies against the holy spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit i want you to understand the theological truth here and i want you to underline highlight whatever you need to do what jesus says here he says all sins will be forgiven all That's all-encompassing. Brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, all sins are forgiven. That is a hope that we can cling to and hold fast to forever and ever and ever. I've heard way too many people come to me when they find out I'm a pastor and say, well, God could never forgive me. That is absolute rubbish and the lie from the pit of hell. All sins are forgiven and whatever blasphemies are uttered, and then, for some reason, we get hung up on the butt here, and we, we get struggling in this idea of what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, He defines it for us. Because we sit here and say, but, but what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Because we read it, and it says, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. It is an eternal sin, and we're like, oh my, I don't want to do that. Brothers and sisters, if you are even contemplating that, you don't have to worry about it. I can guarantee you that. 
Blasphemy simply is abusive speech. It's mockery. And Jesus even tells us, in case we don't know what it is, he tells us right in this passage what it is. He says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So what is it? It is to declare the work of Jesus as the work of Satan. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters. It's not that complex. He tells us, he's got the hyphen there, and he says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They were never words intended to torment. I love this quote by Henry Ironside. He says, These words were never intended to torment anxious souls honestly desiring to know Christ, but they stand out as a blazing beacon warning of the danger of persistent, persisting in the rejection of the Spirit's testimony of Christ until the seared conscience no longer responds to the gospel message. Another commentary wrote, Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never be, forgetting, not, never be forgiven, not because it is a sin too big for God to forgive, but because it is an attitude of heart that cares nothing for God's forgiveness. It never has forgiveness because it never wants God's forgiveness. I've seen Christians struggle and wondering and pondering, Can I, have I committed the act of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Brothers and sisters, all sins will be forgiven except the one where we sit here and deny that Jesus is the Christ. When we proclaim that He is actually an unclean spirit, that He is not the work as the Son of God. Please, please, do not find yourself tormented by these words. So Jesus approaches these men in a real spiritual battle and offers them mercy and grace, the gospel. And then as he kind of goes on in the story, he, he, it's, it's interesting because you have his family coming right at the beginning of the story. They're trying to get him, to overtake him, to seize him. And then he goes into this, uh, this encounter with the Pharisees and suddenly there's, oh yeah, we're reminded in the story whether it's Mark finally remembering that his family's still there. It says that, uh, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. There is a friendly call here. What a contrast it is where Jesus warns these Pharisees, hey, the path you're on, you're on a path of destruction. And then he turns, and he offers a friendly invite and i want you to notice first a contrast here there's a lot of contrast going on in this text but there is an incredible contrast some things that stand out it says his mother and his brothers came and what and they were standing outside there's a contrast because in the very next verse it says a crowd was where sitting around him standing outside versus sitting around him being with him. And then Jesus turns and he says, who are my mother and brothers? And he looks around at those seated around him and he said, my mother and brother and sisters are those who do the will of God. That is a call, brothers and sisters. It is a call because as Jesus, uh, uh, in a day and age, this was a radical statement because in Jesus' day and age, it was all about my namesake 
and my social prestige that brought me fame and fortune and success in society. And now Jesus turns from that and He says, an invitation to participate in the kingdom of God. And how? Obedience to the gospel. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So, looking at this as a whole, this whole passage, what, what are some takeaways? What are some things that we can, we can walk away with? The first thing that, that I've already mentioned that really stands out to me is that the spiritual battle is real. And it's not just from our enemies. Right? The reality is Satan uses whomever he can and will to hinder the work of Christ. The battle is real, and one of the things that I find encouraging, inspirational, and exciting as I read through this is while the battle is real, he will proceed on victorious. I can guarantee that if I sat down with each and every one of you and started talking, we would find the spiritual battle in your life right now. The spiritual battle might be yourself and the struggles you have internally that you cannot find victory over. Because Satan will use whatever he can, however he will, to hinder the work of Christ. But not only is the battle real, the gospel is powerful and so much grander. And he will proceed on victorious. Another thing that stands out to me in this passage is that Jesus leads us by example of how to love our enemies. We would all do well to consider how we might respond when reproached, when ridiculed, mocked, whatever it might be. Do we respond with grace and mercy? Do we remember that the gospel is the message of hope that all people, all men must hear? That Jesus Christ has come to plunder his goods to take what Satan has claimed as his, but is not. Another one is obedience to the gospel is everything. Jesus calls and makes an invitation to join his family. What a privilege, what a joy that we can sit here and say that I can become a part of the family of God. I love and I quote it all the time. It's my favorite verse in Scripture. I know I say that a lot, but I really, really, really mean it this time. 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And so now we are today. Mind-blowing. If you don't grasp how mind-blowing that is, that God Almighty, the Creator of the universe that speaks stars into existence, has declared His love for us in such an incredible way that He says, today you can be my sons and daughters. If that doesn't sink into your heart and make an explosion, I'm not sure what could. That the One who takes care of every last grasshopper and mosquito says, I want you as my sons and daughters. And you can't do anything to earn or deserve it or become it, but I will do everything to claim you and take you as my 
sons and daughters and adopt you as my heirs. That is heart-wrenching. I love the words of Jonathan Edwards when he talked about the Great Awakening. He was the greatest proponent of it and also the greatest opponent of it. He said in a, in a deep book, which would take me hours to read the first page, he says in Charity and Its Fruits that, that shame on us if we are not moved to tears by the gospel. When we consider what Christ has done for us. He has died for us and made us sons and daughters of the King. Obedience to the gospel that he has called. And, and you know what? Here's the reality. Some of us are here in bondage to guilt and shame because of sin in our life. I would venture to guess that most of us are. And we walk around gloomy when we should be filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I get it. I do it all the time. Get up. Obey the gospel that He has called us to. You are sons and daughters of the King. He has plundered you. He has taken you. He has conquered death and the one who holds power over it. And we let Satan rob us of all sorts of joy and pleasure in walking in the fruit of the Holy Spirit because we are trapped in a guilt, in a bondage, and then it's a a rut that we get stuck in and we can't get out of. Well, here's what Jesus says, I have plundered you, you are mine. Walk in that. Who are my mother and brothers and sisters? I love the verse in Hebrews chapter 2 where it says that He is not ashamed to call us brothers. We could go on and talk about the importance of allegiance and unity that Jesus prayed for, for unity among His children and His followers. John chapter 17. But the last thing I want to just hit on here as an application is the family. Family is to be with Jesus. We should delight in being with the family of God. The psalmist says it's better to be a doorpost or a doorman in the house of God than eternity anywhere else. There should be a joy in our heart in being with one another. We should want to be with each other because we are family. We should want to be with the bride. We should be uh, known for wanting to be with the bride. By your love for one another, they will know you as my disciples. If there is not that desire in our heart to want to be with Jesus and with one another, then we've got a problem. I get it. Family... Family is family, right? You know the song, maybe. Maybe you don't. Probably shouldn't. I don't even know who wrote it, but anyway. Sometimes they ask you for money. Sometimes they cause problems. But you got to love them because they're family. We're a family. Because Jesus has invited us to be a part of it. 
And there is great joy in that. And I love, I imagine Jesus, and, and some people look at this and say, was Jesus insulting his mother? No. I think he was inviting his mother. You're standing outside. Why don't you come on in? Because there's no greater place to be than seated around Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that all sins can be forgiven and will be forgiven in the presence of Jesus, our Savior. Father, we thank you that, that in Jesus we have family. Greatest joy and gift ever given, the bride of Christ. Father, I pray for anyone here today that has not obeyed the gospel, that today would be the day. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of hope and salvation eternal. That we can know You. We can come and sit at Your feet and bask in Your glory and the joy of our Savior. We love You. We thank You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say one more thing before... I hand it off to these guys. You know, I think so oftentimes one of the things that frustrates me about so many teachers today is we make the gospel so complex. We define terms that Jesus never used. And we make it so complex that people get confused and baffled and trying to understand. And I love the words of John. The gospel is simple, brothers and sisters. The gospel is so simple that a little child can receive it. It doesn't need to understand the hyperstatic union of Christ. Listen to the words that John wrote in his epistle in John chapter, 1 John chapter 5. He says this, this is the gospel. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us. It is eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And John says this, he says, I have written these things. To you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Don't walk out of here today without knowing that truth. That He is the Son of God and He has died for your sins and He offers full forgiveness to all who believe. It's recorded for us. You don't need to be a scholar to understand it. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's what Satan sought to destroy. And I pray that that would be your hope eternal today.